Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome back to Crime and Nourishment. In the previous episodes, we've examined key features of the relationship between nutrition and offending. First, Dr. Alex Richardson and Carmel McConnell explained that hunger and inadequate nutrition can impair children's brain development and behavior, meaning that hungry children find it much more difficult to concentrate, are more impulsive and more likely to be labeled disruptive. We heard from Sarah Dove that even when controlling for other factors, children in receipt of free school meals are four times more likely to be excluded from school. Furthermore, excluded children are more likely to offend. We heard from Dr. Bernard Gesch that when setting up his alternative to custody programs, simply feeding the children was the most effective strategy for improving their behavior. And the evidence from the prison studies is of a consistent 30% reduction in violence from improved nutrition. The evidence in terms of improved behaviour and academic outcomes for children with access to breakfast clubs and good quality clinical research with prison populations, as well as other research from around the world on nutrition, brain and behaviour, is well established. But we're still no closer to answering one key question. Why aren't we doing anything with this information? Why are the prisons not implementing a cheap, low-risk intervention that could improve the working conditions for their staff and the safety of their establishments. But also, why isn't our sentencing evidence-based? To answer these questions, I met with members of the Prisons Research Centre, or PRC, at Cambridge University. Professor Nicola Padfield QC is a barrister and a professor of criminal and penal justice at the University of Cambridge. Fabio Tartarini is a chartered psychologist and PhD student looking at the factors associated with prisoners' personal development and rehabilitation at the PRC. And Luis Navarro is a restaurateur who provides catering workshops and consultations to prisons as part of Learning Together, a prison education intervention. Is there a reason that we haven't looked at this research in terms of sentencing? You know, is it is it too difficult? Is it that it's it goes against the idea that of volition, that people choose their behavior and therefore they are responsible for the consequences of their actions and therefore they should pay for it. Um, does it not fit very well with the idea of tough justice? Is it seen as a soft touch to be thinking about things as simple and soft as nutrition as it relates to human behavior? Uh, if anybody has any thoughts, 
Well, I would start by saying judges are a very conservative lot and they, they do what they're told to do. And most judges think that their role is a very narrow role. And I have long been frustrated by the fact that sentencing is seen as something very narrow that judges do in court and follow the rules. And it's not been their concern what happens to people when they go to prison. It's not even been their concern what the early release rules are, let alone what the conditions are in prison. And one would have to change the mindset of judges to get them to do anything differently. And what's happened in the last 20 years with sentencing guidelines has meant, made them, I think, if anything, even more conservative and cautious. So if we want to get people thinking about um, neurological mitigation and the area where it's been thought of a bit more, I think, than food is age. Mm -hmm. You really do have to get policymakers, government, parliament involved rather than the judges. The judges are just going to say, well, it's not really our job to think about these things unless parliament tells us to because mm -hmm. they set down the framework. I disagree with that. I think judges could be much more active, but they tend to be reactive and conservative. And conservative because that's the kind of background that judges tend to come from, um, or that's a feature of the training, of legal training. What do you think contributes to that? They don't have very much training as judges because they've all been lawyers. And so what they're taught in training is very much about the meaning of section 142 of the criminal justice act 2003 or whatever they don't have that much training on what it's like in prison or the quality of food in prisons and you have to when you're training as a judge go on a visit to a prison and um, you go in the front door and you get shown around by the governor and you know, i've been in prison lots of time but i have to tell you i am still very naive um the I think only once or twice have I visited a prison as a prisoner's anonymous friend. Mm -hmm. and I was really shocked the extent to which I was treated differently. I found this very worrying, but not very surprising. Official prison visits are very much like when the Ofsted inspector visits a school. The school is always tidier and more organised than it has ever been. And everyone is on their best behaviour. What I did find surprising is that as a consequence of only being required to make one visit, most judges have very little idea of what prisoners like. When we consider that most prisoners are from poorer, disadvantaged backgrounds, and most judges are from wealthier, more privileged backgrounds, it highlights the disconnect between the life experiences of the person passing the sentence and the person being imprisoned the little pleasure you feel the officers getting, making you wait at the gate for two minutes longer than you need to, the way you're searched. The whole way I was treated when I was the prisoner's friend, so different than when you go in the front gate as the visiting judge. And you have to experience that even to feel that. I'm really naive that I'm telling you this really, really naive story, but I'll tell you that most judges are a lot more naive than me. How much understanding would they have of the backgrounds of the people that they're sentencing? Well, that again has got much worse in recent years. When I started in this business 40 years ago, 
um, everybody would have a social inquiry report, which meant the immigration officer had probably been to their home and talked to their mummy and this, that and the other. But then they changed in the 90s from being pre-sentence reports to being, uh, from being social inquiry reports to being pre-sentence reports. And they changed overnight to feeling like prosecution documents rather than defence documents. Well, also, sorry to interrupt there, but... This is Luis Navarro. Have they got the power to prescribe anything? They don't have the power, do they? The, the judges, the judiciary doesn't have the power to prescribe what a prisoner should or should not take in order to make his mental or, or behavior, mental health or behavior improve. Uh, so it's, it's not up to the judge, right? Yeah, no, if a judge said, and I think this person could benefit a lot from X or Y, they would be laughed at in a sense. Um, they definitely don't think it's part of their role. If they said, and I've got a message for the prison governor that, it might or might not get, get passed to the prison governor, but it's in the world in which, in the real world, they would never ever do such things. So that's a good point. I asked him about his experiences. In relation to what your question was, that uh, why is this not happening? And for the little experience that I have, or, the, or the, whatever experience I have in prisons, is because it's a highly dysfunctional system where sometimes you can see, or I can see, what, in my opinion, would be easy solutions or easy things to implement, but they are not that easy within the system in the prison. I think there are uh, the one you mentioned even though I'm not in favor of um, um, supplements, mm -hmm. like the one you mentioned, but the data is there. It's better than nothing. And it will be probably fairly easy and not overly expensive to administer them to the population in prison. Why those, those things are not happening or make happen? <sighs> Is usually my question when I walk into those wards and I see, or those kitchens in the, and I see, well, why, why don't you do this this way, which is the obvious option, and there is little answer. It is a highly dysfunctional uh, system that has worked like that for many, many, many years, and changing even that little, I think, is extremely challenging sometimes. The reason, I don't think there is any reason. I think they just go used, go, get used to do something in, in some ways and then it's very difficult to change it. We like to blame money, don't we? So the prison service says we've only got two pound whatever a day per prisoner. But you go to prisons in, let's say up into prisons in India, where they have on-site bakeries and all sorts of things going on, which our system is not only, as Louise says, dysfunctional, it's also very unimaginative, I think. And it's, and it's rigged, Nikki, because, for example, one of the reasons why those two pounds, 14 or whatever it is nowadays, don't stretch to better food is because there are procurement rules, mm. national, I mean, wide, uh, at a national level, that leave very little margin of maneuver to the prisons to control what they purchase and how they influence, you know, that, that budget. So these, these massive procurement contracts are granted to a single company nationwide that is... Uh, pretty much is able to control whatever they do and whatever they supply. So again, is the system and the way the system has been implemented that imposes all sorts of uh, obstacles to anything that can be done.
in, the, in what you say, Nikki, creativity. Well, creativity is not allowed because you have a massive legal contract there that is not going to allow any creativity to come into play. So that is another reason. Mm. The financial question is is not a very convincing one, actually, because I was when speaking to um, Bernard Gesh, who was the originator of the 2002 study, and he was saying he they did do a an economic analysis, and they said that as a supplement, so if we stick with the idea of supplements, but we'll think about it more broadly, but as a supplement, they could get it down around 10 pence a day. So there's a kind of immediate practical uh, economic argument, but then there's the longer term economic argument, which is it's just cheaper to keep people out of prison um, or reduce their violence or you know make them less risky and less likely to self-harm or to get into fights than it is to staff a prison full of angry, violent people. Wait, can I ask you, um, I don't know, maybe Luz knows about it, but is there any overlook about uh, the, what is this, the intake of prisoners, for example? I mean, is anybody overlooking like dietary you know, requirements and what is given to prisoners to see whether, whether it match or not, or is it just a matter of economics? So half and half. So the prison caterers will say, look, we provide the the right balance of foods to meet you know nutritional guidelines but there's a difference between what's provided on the trays and what's actually taken and i think that shows up in uh, one of bernard's trials again where they did an actual nutritional assessment on a group of young offenders and found that over 90 percent of them were deficient in kind of core any test in any facility in any kitchen uh, I mean, any, any investigation wouldn't pass the test of the, yeah, the, the basic ingredients or basic nutrients uh, in those meals. It wouldn't. I mean, not in my practice. No, not for what I have actually seen in there. It wouldn't pass. What I've seen is really shocking. You get given your evening meal halfway through the afternoon and it's sort of bread sandwich and you're given your breakfast at the same time, which is a dried something or other. And many people have eaten it all by 6 p.m. and then have no breakfast. I mean, yeah. it's just deeply shocking to me what yeah. I've seen. They have the yeah. guidelines. They are there in the office of the person that is in charge. It's all there. You, you see the board, you walk in, and they have all the guidelines and all the nutrients and what the food should be. When you actually see what I actually get, in practice, any on-the-spot inspection will prove that those boards there are, in my experience, never met. Given what we know from the clinical evidence, this is very troubling and perhaps makes a stronger case for the value of nutrient supplementation for this group. So what happens to this evidence? As a mental health professional, I have to be careful that my work, because of how it affects other people, is evidence-based and informed by the best available science. Presumably, sentencing, in which judges have the power several times a day to change someone's life forever has similar evidence-based foundations. Is sentencing evidence-based? Mm, what a good question. Um, what do you think that sentencing is meant to achieve? Because what most judges would say was it was meant to achieve consistent outcomes for different prisoners. So they're very interested in whether one rapist gets five years and whether another rapist gets nine years. 
I'm worrying a little bit about why nine years was right for that person and five years was right for that person. So the little bit of work that's been done in sentencing tends to be on that kind of consistent message from the judge. There are very, very few people who are studying this. We have a sentencing council and they have a small research budget. And it's nearly all been spent on measuring consistency, a little bit on public satisfaction, which again is a subject which outrages me because they think their job is in part building public confidence, to which I always say, well, what happens if the public are rightly not confident? We don't want to make the public confident if they would be wrong to be confident. So again, it's a huge question that you raise there. I guess I'm thinking around the established and available neuroscience, right? So if we know that there, let's say, a 15-year-old who is going through, you know, a rapid growth spurt, so there's this competition between their brain and their body for the available nutrients, you know, and they're having this huge hormonal spurt, to what extent can they be considered responsible for their poor impulse control and should age and brain development be mitigating uh, conditions for sentencing? To me it makes total sense but I'm quite sure if you said can I come and give a talk at the judicial college when there's a judicial training course they would say very interesting but what do you expect us to do with this information? I give people the right sentence for their offence. And that's the problem with our sentencing system at the moment, is that it's much more interested in looking at what people did rather than trying to assess why they did it. And there seem to be other worrying inconsistencies. One of the dreadful graphs in David Lammy's report, which I show to everyone, is the reduction in white young men in young offender institution has been quite dramatic and there has been no reduction in the number of black young men in young offender institutions so that there are now just about as many black young men in young offender institutions as there are white young men in young offender institutions and that is so deeply shocking we should all worry about that enormously. But I think the judiciary is still light years away from thinking about what you're thinking about. And there are so many areas we could pick upon. One of the areas where there's been lots of concern, as I'm sure you know lots, is joint enterprise. These young men age 20 getting a minimum term of 20 years because they were in the wrong place at the wrong time with their mate who had a knife on them. And yes, they knew their mate had a knife on them. They all had a knife on them and he stuck it into someone. And you know, one of my minor reforms I'd make tomorrow is nobody should get a minimum term of longer than their age when they did their crime. To me, it is really, really shocking that we have people in prison who've been told you'll serve 25 years and you're only 20 when you got it. So there are so many things that are wrong with our sentencing system. Um, I think what we need to do in relation to your work is sort of get it on the general debate and discussion, which it hasn't been. I just wanted to pick up on a couple of points there. So one is, is it in practical terms a difficult thing to do? So would it be difficult to you know put together some guidelines and say 
if this, then that, you know, if this level of, uh, for, for the sake of argument, um, glycated hemoglobin or something that we know affects the brain, right, then this should be considered a mitigating circumstance. You know, would it be in practical terms a difficult thing for a judge to have that sort of guideline introduced into training? No, if people wanted to say this is something you should take into account, doubtless they would take it into account. The place where I'm particularly concerned, and I'm sure you're particularly concerned, is actually the young offender institutions, because they're heartbreaking. You, you know, if you're a person like me and you go into a young offender institution, you can just see all those young men looking basically undernourished and unhealthy, and you want to take them home and give them a decent Mexican meal. Yeah, they're, they're, they're children. Um, they're children. They're, they're they should be there in the first place. I was interested in Fabio's take on the discussion from the perspective of rehabilitation. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, I don't know, probably they're just general observations, but it's, um, I don't know. I mean, I think like the, the prison, like, the sentencing and everything, you know, as it happens, it's a way of um, trying to, you know, to pick up all the faults and, the, you know, the shortcomings of society. So that's uh, one of the main problems we have, you know, and I think, you know, when you were asking about why this is not happening, I mean, there's a general attitude, I think, with the system and I'm more focused on rehabilitation, for example. Um, but the problem is that, you know, there's so much focus on risk and also, you know, all the cuts and everything don't allow for anything more creative or anything which is more, you know, progressive in a way mm-hmm. to actually take place. Um, I know that there's a possibility like, you know, there's a new uh, governors have some um, independence in how they manage their fundings. Yeah, that would be an interesting thing if, if there was a little more independence because then the creativity that Nikki mentioned you know, even with two pounds fifty, I could do miracles in a prison with two pounds fifty. I'm telling you right now. What I don't know. I mean, it's like one of the things I was thinking is that there's a sort of detachment between the, um, how to say, the more judicial aspects and uh, the health part, you know, the penological and the health. So there's a bit of a disconnection there. And uh, you know, for example, from what the prisoners I've been in, it's like they working in the, in the kitchen, for example, they were saying that there's not a huge amount of, you know, understanding, you know, of how, for example, even the kitchen should be working. So there's a lot of, um, how to say, no lack of professionality. I don't know if to put it that in that way, but it's like, see, not really relevant. And my concern is just in general with all the prisons is that it is too much, you know, in terms of also politics, it's too much ideological in this country. So, you know, there's a lot of filtering of evidence or whatever people say just because of political ideology. So I don't know, you know, I'm not really positive about, you know, change that could happen really easily. So it's not the prison anymore because as I understand, you know, the, the provision of healthcare is not from the prison, but it's actually from the NHS, mm-hmm. Public Health England. So that becomes a separate issue uh, while the food is from the prison. So, you know, we need to find the right channels in that sense. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, talking about supplements then becomes a health issue and public health um, will, be, will be looking at that. So I think, you know, that the way forward would be to actually, you know, make sure that what is that what the food is get, getting in the prison is actually healthy in itself. So, you know, there's actually um, provision of what people actually need. So the risk is that political ideology, the need to be seen as being tough on crime, for example, gets in the way of implementing the scientific research. This is very far away from the principles of evidence-based practice and, of course, creates greater risk of bias, prejudice 
and abuse of political power. But Fabio raises another issue around prison nutrition, which is who's responsible for it? If the nutrition comes from the food, it falls into the remit of the prison service catering contracts. But in the form of supplements, it might be considered healthcare, in which case it's the responsibility of the NHS. And there's a problem with the prisoners, and I will stop talking, sorry. No, 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 please. <laughs> the prisoners I've been talking to is that there's a major problem. So first of all, the food is not uh, satisfactory. So lots of carbs and, uh, you know, people complain about it. So it becomes a, a replication of the um, social differences that people have on the outside. So if people can actually afford to buy better food, they can buy it from the canteen and actually have the right, you know, uh, intake and everything. But otherwise, they're, they're stuck. The canteen system in prison refers to items that prisoners can purchase in addition to the basics provided by the establishment. These might be things like shampoo and sanitary towels, as well as food items. For example, a prisoner who works in the prison and earns a small wage, or those who have someone on the outside who can send them money, will be able to purchase more items. So that, you know, of course, that creates resentment, that, you know, keeps, uh, you know, that there's, a, of course, an influence of, not be feeling good in yourself, you know, physically, and the way, you know, that affects your mental health. And then, of course, you know, uh, it's called like in a downward spiral. No, and just picking up on this is then, if this is to be considered a health issue under a different body of government, then you have to then also address that the NHS or the health uh, part of the, of the government then also has to recognize because and that they have a massive problem because they do not comply with the uh, basic nutritional value uh, in their own institutions, the NHS and any hospital. And I know this also firsthand because I spent many times there with my son. Uh, it's appalling. So then you have to be, if this is a health issue, there will also have to be some, some work to be done uh, uh, with the health institutions because they also need to change their ways. There's also an argument uh, about the fact that, you know, you're taking people from the outside who are in difficult situations who are already having deficit in their intake. So, you know, let's assume that there's a direct correlation between food and behavior. You know, there's also the social implications. But the thing is, we take these people, we bring them into prison, we give them great food, they're doing better, they're reducing the balance, and then we bring them back into society where they're ostracized, they don't get a job, and they're getting again in the same situations. So we are only, you know, patching that problem. So it's, a, you know, to overlook in a sense, you know, the, the systemic issue that, you know, prisons are not the solution for this in a way. You know, it, this is a, is a social issue, you know, social justice, you want to talk about that in a way, so we want to extend it. So, you know, we need to consider in that sense, you know, prisons are not the only answer, that's what I'm trying to say. So probably the other way is also to prevent as well. You know, oh, absolutely. Yeah. Where, where would you start with prevention? School, Ines. Preschool, feeding kids. Isn't it tragic how many kids go to school to have breakfast because they haven't had breakfast at home? Exactly. I'm so struck by this, that we've come full circle. These experts in sentencing and prison rehabilitation are unanimous in saying that we need to start by feeding children enough adequate nutrition. It's exactly what we heard in episode one from Dr. Richardson and Carmel McConnell, and it could be so simple. 
one of the things the most frustrating things about this is the apparent simplicity of at least a part of a broader solution you know that this is something we could do you know whether it's making sure that all children have sufficient meals or whether it's saying we can find the at-risk families and provide them with additional food stamps or you know some sort of support in order that, so that they can feed their children it's not rocket science it's literally maslow's hierarchy of needs you know bottom level feed people so what should we do putting it on the agenda is the right thing to do i can't say more than that and we, we academics and Fabio's huge political ideology sorts of questions can make you want to curl up in a ball and think it's not worth doing anything because you can't make the world a better place. But, you know, we're all having this conversation because we all want to make the world a better place. Um, Don't stop talking about it just because there's no easy answer. Institutional catering. Schools, prisons, hospitals. That's where you start. You set the example there. It shouldn't take a lot of money and it shouldn't take a lot of... um, organization is just changing the way in which things are done and you said a massive example there in all those three that are incredibly influential ways uh, of um, changing the habits and the behavior of of the masses so yeah institutional catering in those three departments that i think would go a long way and also think as we bring it to like uh, the, the public as well that's what an important aspect because as we're talking about judges and trying to please the public if you start seeing you know, developing that sort of understanding from the public about, you know, the importance of food, et cetera, which, you know, they're trying to do now in UNHS, that will be helping in the longer term. So, yeah, so that, yeah, public is important to get to take on board. If we had one aim for the penal system, which was the reduction of reoffending, and they meant that, it would have a huge impact. What is the aim of the penal system? A muddle. Um, There are lots of conflicting aims. Public protection is what most people put top of their list, like the parole board, wrongly. Don't release people unless it's safe to do so, is their overwhelming mantra. Um, So there's public protection, there's deterrence, which again the academics all know doesn't really work, but judges believe that deterrence sentences work reform, rehabilitation. There's a whole collection of conflicting aims. That's interesting because it sounds like I'm getting a, a bigger picture of a just an imbalance of power. You know, all the people on the ground are on board. <laughs> we need to improve the food. We need to improve the conditions. That'll be better in the long run. That'll, that'll help with prevention. That'll be cheaper. Yet the it's like the 1% financially is that all of the power resides in this very tiny group who aren't particularly connected to the front line or the grassroots aren't particularly aware of the information. Don't necessarily think it's their job anyway, yet wield all the power in terms of, of sentencing and how, how things work on the ground. Yep. Hmm. Exactly. That's exactly the same discourse we had. Uh, you know, we have a few meetings about rehabilitation, and that's exactly the same. We always repeat the same exact things over and over. You know, academic conferences, you know, meetings with practitioners within the prison themselves. But you know, it seems like there's a you know a wall down there. So it has to be like you know a subtle you know infiltration to the system and reaching you know the tipping point that Luis was talking about. I think that's the best way. Mm-hmm. 
Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Life is full of awesome what-ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi there, is that John? It is, yes. Kimberly. Hello, Kimberly. Thank you very much for ringing. And thank you for ringing when you said you would, which is (laughs) great. This is John Samuels QC. John is a retired judge and former chairman of the Criminal Subcommittee of the Council of Circuit Judges, the representative body of Crown and County Court Judges in the UK. He's also the former chair of the Prisoners' Education Trust, and the perfect person to help me understand more about the role and experience of judges in criminal cases. I am aware that I know things from one angle, but I know really nothing about the the logistics or the policy of sentencing or what it looks like from your side. I'm, I'm interested in how the decisions or the decisions about the decisions are made that the short the short story is that I think that the judges are missing a major trick when they delegate responsibility for those whom they have sentenced to prison and probation officers and or psychologists and or whoever. I don't suggest for a moment that it's the responsibility of sentences, whether judges or magistrates, to supplant the role of the experts, whether they're um, psychologists, psychiatrists, prison officers, although prison officers vary hugely, as you know better than I do, um, or indeed probation officers, ditto. But I do think that sentencing should not be a snapshot moment, meaning that once you've made the decision you move on to deal with the next case. Because you may have made the decision on a wholly fallacious basis. And if, for example, you've received reports saying that if only the prisoner or the defendant or whoever receives XYZ program or course of treatment, then all will be fine. But if that course of treatment or program is not available Mm. for the prisoner, 
either because it's been uh, removed from the establishment where the prisoner goes or has been curtailed or whatever. The judge needs to know that. And if he or she does not know that that's the case, what has happened is that the sentence has been imposed, as it were, blindfolded. Mm -hmm. And that has to be wrong. So how much information do judges have about the mitigating circumstances or the you know, the events that led up to the offence for which that person is is being charged and, and tried? Well, first of all, the number of what are known as pre-sentence reports mm. has fallen dramatically over the last few years. Oh, really? Really dramatically. Yeah. Now, for budgetary reasons... Um, what used to be a standard provision in terms of pre-sentence reports informed by an OASIS assessment. Mm-hmm. And that familiar to you? Yes. The OASIS tool used yes. by probation. Not fondly, but <laughs> it was always... And I mean, you, you, know, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. OASIS stands for Offender Management Assessment System and an OASIS report is a risk assessment tool used by the prison service. For budgetary reasons, it's much cheaper to produce either oral reports, which are produced on the day, than uh, a full detailed um, report, which will, if it is a full detailed written report, it will summarise the effects of the OASIS assessment. Mm. There are only two people who actually get to see an OASIS assessment. The first is the creator of the assessment, and the second is the parole board, who get reams of these things, which are extruded um, (laughs) and fill up dossiers by the hundreds of pages, because each assessment is about 70 pages long when it's printed out. And now they're electronic, of course, so it's even worse because you can't even um, (laughs) work with it. Mm. Mm -hmm. So in answer to your question, what information does the sentencer have now? The answer is very little. So, and that's quite that's quite shocking. It is it? shocking. It is shocking because the the question then is, what is the what is the judge basing the sentence on? Is it strictly the the kind of remit of the crime? I, 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 I feel a bit a bit flummoxed by that. You're, you're you're not so much flummoxed as shocked. <laughs> you're shocked because it defies common sense. Yes. And um, the answer to your first question is, what is the sentence based on? Is primarily based on the sentencing guidelines identified by the Sentencing Council for that category of offence. And with the, the sentencing guidelines, who makes them? Well, the Sentencing 
Council, which is a body um, set up under uh, which act was it? Criminal Justice Act, two thousand and three. And what is the the evidence base on which, as far as you know, um, on which the sentencing guidelines are drawn up? You know, who does the council uh, recruit or speak to to understand? I guess I want to know what the the basis is. You know, how does how does one sit down and say that this crime is worthy of this tariff? Well, first of all, um, the Sentencing Council comprises a majority of its membership are judges or sentences, but a minority of its uh, membership are lay persons, of which they are very proud. <laughs> and they undertake consultation exercises superficially to identify what the community thinks should be or should not be a condign sentence for a particular set of circumstances. And they also undertake um, quite detailed research. If there's this detailed research going on, and I guess this is kind of where it starts to chime with with the work that I'm looking at is we have this very robust established evidence indicating that aspects of our behavior and this shouldn't be a surprise really but aspects of our behavior are influenced by environmental and I guess intravironmental so the bodily status so, so the brain development developmental delays but also things like being under the influence of alcohol or drugs or um, kind of pertinent to, to this conversation, the historical nutritional status of the person which has impacted their brain development. Does that kind of neurological evidence make its way to the sentencing council as far as you know? Well, first of all, whether it makes its way to the sentencing council, I can't say categorically. But I can say categorically that sentencers, rather than sentencing counsel, do not normally have that sort of information to draw on. I remember um, when I went to a conference in the States, uh, oh, years and years ago, uh, where I was shown these brain scans of those who were regular drug users and you could see vividly on the brain scan what impact had been created by entrenched drug use. Mm-hmm. Um, it was obvious when you compared a normal brain with a brain of someone who'd been using crack cocaine for years that most of the brain wasn't there. Mm-hmm. Now that's quite a dramatic sort of slide or pair of slides, but this is not information that is provided to sentences. And I think sentences in this jurisdiction anyway, Mm -hmm. and I think this is totally wrong. And this is why I agree that everything you say about the impact of nutrition is information that should be known to sentences. It's hard to know what to make of this. The idea that a sentence can be handed down without the judge knowing very much about the nature of the person standing in front of them 
I find very alarming. In contrast, it would be considered wholly unethical and frankly impossible for a psychiatrist to make a diagnosis of a patient without full information about their background and behaviour. And that's because diagnoses can be life-changing. But so too are criminal sentences. So surely it's inadequate and inappropriate for the judge not to have access to all the relevant information about the person they're about to sentence. Only today I was reading uh, the latest syllabus for the Judicial College. Mm -hmm. And it runs to about 70 pages, of course. And I was looking through it just to see whether or not any guidance is being provided to sentences along the lines that I've been suggesting. Mm -hmm. And of course, there's nothing there at all. Sentencing is regarded as a sort of add-on for judges. Trial management and what is known as judgecraft is hugely important, but the business of sentencing is regarded as just, oh, any fool can do that. And I find this quite awful, actually. It's really alarming because that's the part that has the effect on the ground, whether it's you know, people going to prison or people being separated from their families or people having the opportunity to turn their lives around because they've been given a community sentence or that they've been given a provision order or... Oh, um, and, but even, you know, because I appreciate that some the the nutrition evidence people struggle with, but we have very strong neurological evidence, for example, for, for children and adolescents that, you know, the parts of their brain that help them to manage risk to um to suppress impulsivity to make good decisions isn't properly you know fully baked until your mid-20s and that's very well established neurological evidence oh i know this is why the transition to adulthood movement is so important and so so what happens to this evidence so what you know does (sighs) i really am quite astonished I guess the base of my question is why, if we if we know this, if we, you know, the the research community, um, and and the practitioners and clinicians, you know, as a psychologist on the ground, this is the stuff that I'm telling my clients and patients about. Why doesn't this make its way into inclusion, into the consideration around sentencing? That's a very big question. And rather than becoming clearer, the more people I ask, the more confused I am about the answer to that question. Sentence tariffs are set out in the sentencing guidelines, which are established by the Sentencing Council. That much I know. But why some established neurological evidence is not taken into consideration is still a mystery. And it's not as though there's no precedent for it. In a recent consultation, the Sentencing Council sets out details of how certain mental health conditions could influence the offender's responsibility for their offence. They say, if an offender has any of the conditions listed, it may affect their level of responsibility for the offence, but that the relevance of any condition will depend on the nature, extent and effect of the condition on an individual and whether there is a causal connection between the condition and the offence. 
So the final decision is still down to the sitting judge, but at least there is consideration for the fact that factors outside of the defendant's control could affect their behaviour. As Dr. Gesh described in episode two, it's not outside our power to include the established causal evidence of the role of nutrition on behaviour into these guidelines. In fact, it might actually be more straightforward than in the case of mental illnesses, which are complex and overlapping, whereas we do already have established baselines for nutritional status. So it seems that the only thing that's missing is the willingness. This I find very disturbing, especially in the case of suspended and excluded children and young offenders. There is a gulf between what frontline workers and researchers are seeing and saying and what is written in the sentencing guidelines. Judges sit at the centre of this gulf and, were they aware, could influence the sentencing council. So how much do judges know? How often will will a judge have gone into a prison? Uh, Maybe as part of the training? Uh, I will tell you the classic answer to that. Before I was authorised to sit as a part-time judge, I was required to do two things. The first was to have a conversation with a probation officer, which I did. Mm. And second was to visit one custodial establishment. That's it. End of. And was there was a requirement of that meeting to meet with a prisoner or just to visit the establishment? Because that's quite oh, different, just, isn't just, it? Just, just to go in rather than, you know, I've been in, I've walked through it and I've come out the other end. Good grief. Because, I mean, there's that's quite like an Ofsted inspection, isn't it? It's, you know, when we know the Ofsted inspector's coming, so quick, let's tidy up the schools, let's get the uh, naughty kids to stay at home. There's not much you're going to gain as a judge from having a, a walkthrough with the governor who's going to be on the best their best behaviour as well. Well, um, you can see where I'm coming from. <laughs> I absolutely can. <laughs> I, when I was still a proper judge, a sitting judge, um, I was I arranged for visits from by judges in, sitting in London courts, which is where I was sitting. Uh, to the education establishments of various London jails because I used to chair a thing called the Prisoners Education Trust. Mm-hmm. And um, so I arranged these these visits to the education departments. We started with Wandsworth and then we went to the Scrubs and then we went to Pentonville. And this was on an annual basis. And I remember so vividly um, one of the visits we made and a lady judge who was sentencing all day long said to me, John, I had no idea that these people were human. And I've never forgotten that. I go, I'm, I'm just struck by the, the disparity, the, the, the distance between the sentencers and the sentencees right that you can make a judgment about someone based on you know as you say increasingly little evidence around the circumstances of of the event 
that will change someone's life forever, but that you can do so in a position where at least some people have no sense of the humanity of the person that they're sentencing. It's extraordinary. Let me give you another um, example of where things go really wrong. Um, Because you worked in um, the female estate, Mm -hmm. you will know that many women come to prison with childcare responsibilities. Mm -hmm. Yes. And yet, in the vast majority of cases, sentences do not have any regard at all for the fact that women do have childcare responsibilities. Now, that's not just something that I've tossed out. There's a lot of research that was done by a lady called Shona Minson. Do you know her? No. She, she's from Oxford. Um, she's a PhD researcher mm-hmm. from Oxford. Anyway, she did this really important research, which came out about a couple of years ago, and I went to the launch of it, uh, which showed that most women with childcare responsibilities were not only being sent into custody without a pre-sentence report at all, but that the sentences were unaware of the existence (gasps) of any children. My goodness. That is terrifying because we know that one of the key risks, one of the biggest factors that will increase someone's likelihood of going to prison is that they've had a parent in prison. So the idea that people are being sentenced without the judge knowing that they have children, you know, we're talking about generational impacts of incarceration. Oh, yes. There are um, about 200 to 250,000 children impacted by parental imprisonment currently. And to be brutal, no one takes blind bit of notice. This is where we loop the circle, though, because where I start with this program, and I perhaps didn't explain to you in the beginning, was, but whilst I'm making three episodes and um, the, the, the core unifying feature of it is, is the research around nutrition and, and offending, but where I yeah. start is with children and the children who are for often you know and and i was speaking to a a head of a pupil referral units charity this morning and she was saying that it's the children who are on on free school meals children who receive free school meals are four times more likely to be excluded from school permanently excluded and we know that children who are permanently excluded or who are sent to pupil referral units are much more likely to start on the pathway to offending. Um, well, it's not just offending. They'll be involved in county lines because that's where the recruiting goes on. County lines describes the practice of trafficking drugs to rural areas from larger towns and cities. Vulnerable children are often recruited or coerced into the practice 
from pupil referral units. And so we've got a, a vulnerable group of children who I, I just I, I'm on the brink of despair. But we we now end up at the end of that story with perhaps parents who it's hard to think of a way out right it sounds as though there are some people who are for because of the circumstances that they were born into um whether that's having a parent that goes to prison whether that's just having being born into poverty then you know their their early start whether that's about nutritional impacts whether that's about educational opportunities the local health care opportunities are more likely to end up in prison they're going more likely to be sentenced by people that have no sense of their lives their experiences or their humanity when they come out of prison because they've not had the educational opportunities or simply because they have a, a sentence a record are less likely to have employment opportunities it's it's difficult to think of a way out of this loop well if I look back on the way in which things have changed during my professional lifetime, um, I do get a sort of glimmer of optimism. Okay. Um, That's good. Breaking, breaking through the gloom. <laughs> <laughs> because it was so awful 50 years ago. Okay. Um, it was far worse. You see, we used to hang people. And we don't do that anymore. Okay, I thought you were going to give me something a little bit more optimistic than that. Well, we're, not, we're not hanging people. I mean, yes, that is an improvement. So, perhaps in 50 years' time, um, it will all take root. Yeah. I am a bit of an optimist, despite all appearances <laughs> to the contrary. Well, I, good. And I think optimism is... is, is warranted and needed i guess i guess maybe i'm just a bit impatient i you know i've been sitting here thinking there's all of this evidence that we already know what will it take to to shift the needle what will it take who needs who needs to know about this john maybe that's a question for you who who does this need to get to? Who needs to take a vested interest in judicial monitoring, in the the neuropsychological correlates of aggression or offending behaviour, in order for this to trickle down into sentencing and probation guidelines? Who needs to know? Well, first of all, um, if you're talking about the correlation between prison behaviour and prison diet, which is part of the, the work that you're doing, mm -hmm. um, it seems to me that the people who are likely to be most interested in it are people like the Prison Governors Association. I did attempt to speak with the Prison Governors Association. However, no one was available to speak to me. It's in the interests of prison governors to have a contented, quiet, peaceful establishment mm. because the opposite is very bad for the prison governor's CV. If you have a riot in mm. your jail, that is a black mark. 
for the governing governor. Huh. But okay. I don't. I simply do not understand why it's not obvious to prison governors that if you provide your uh, prison population with a diet that is obviously substandard in terms of its nutritional value, you will have an impact not only on the behavior but on the general health of your incarcerated population. It's obvious. And um, you will know much more about this than I because I'm not a cook. Uh, But I think that you can produce nutritious meals for a similar cost to Mm. the non-nutritious meals. Well, this I I had a a kind of um, roundtable meeting with Nikki and some of the other members of the sentencing centre Luis and he is a he owns a Mexican restaurant and who but he goes into prisons um and he was actually I think it's fair to say angry that about the quality of the food and he said if they gave me that same budget I could turn out nutritious delicious food that would you know that people would enjoy there wouldn't be fights about that wouldn't be miserable and actually would provide the the adequate adequate nutrition and and maybe that becomes part of the broader conversation about rehabilitation because the other thing about rehabilitation is that it's not just about prisoners is it? it's about ensuring that when people are released from prisons that they are safe engaged members of society you know that having prisoners who are well looked after and rehabilitated is in the best interests of of our wider society as well as the individuals themselves well let me give you um a snapshot of what is happening as we speak. The Prison Governors Association told the government that unless they released up to 25% of the current prison population, there would be an explosion of COVID-19 in the prisons. And that is not only serious for the general health of prisoners, but it's particularly serious for the general health of prison staff Mm. who go home at night Mm -hmm. and who will spread it. So the reaction of the government after being pressed and pressed and pressed was to agree to release 4,000 which is 5% in broad terms Mm -hmm. of the current prison population, which is one-fifth of what is necessary to contain the situation. However, and this is where I get really cross, in agreeing to release 5% of the prison population, nothing has been done to ensure the supervision of those prisoners once released. Second, nothing has been done to secure accommodation for them, nor has anything been done to provide them with financial support. So they're just being sent out of the prison gate with their uh, little black bag of Mm -hmm. personal possessions and probably a discharge grant of £46. 
Now, how irresponsible is that in the middle of a lockdown? So it seems that there are potential benefits to integrating and implementing this research into several levels of the judicial process. Prison staff would benefit from safer working conditions. Prisoners would also be safer and would have reduced risk of having extra time added to their sentences. Prison governors would preside over safer, more effective prisons and with reduced levels of violence and aggression in those released from prison, the public also benefit. In the face of all of this, the idea that instead of embracing the science, the government would prefer to appear to be tough on crime rather than, say, effective on crime, just beggars belief. This approach has led to longer sentences, an exploding prison population, and, as last year's figures attest, the highest levels of violence in prison since records began. It's a short-sighted approach that does excessively more harm than good. It's true that the world of nutrition has more than its fair share of people who are more wedded to an ideology or a lifestyle than they are to the science. Social media is replete with no end of underqualified but overconfident dietary evangelists ready to convert you to the one true nutritional way, and in some cases, individuals who have deceived their many followers with false dietary claims. But that, categorically, is not what we're talking about here. Rather, these are leading researchers heading university departments and running their own hospital research labs, being awarded government grants to undertake what is considered the gold standard paradigm for clinical research, which is then published in good quality, peer-reviewed journals. And in terms of the prison studies, we now have the original paper and at least two international replications showing similar dramatic positive effects. Strikingly, if this were a drug being trialled, it would only need two papers showing a smaller effect to be licensed for treatment. In fact, less effective, more dangerous drugs have already been given to improve mood and behaviour for years. So why isn't anyone doing anything? Could it be, as some of my guests have suggested, that it's just too simple, that we don't get the same intellectual buzz or status enhancement for suggesting that nutrition might be important for the brain and therefore behaviour. If that's the case, then frankly, the people with a duty of care, not just to prisoners, but to young offenders, pupils excluded from mainstream schools and hungry children, are allowing their egos to override their responsibility. Or could it be that the people in positions of power and influence simply do not recognise the humanity of these individuals? The difficult child fighting in the playground, the kids turning up to their alternative to custody programmes who haven't eaten all day, the prisoners eating a nutritionally inadequate diet that impairs their brain's ability to function properly. Adequate nutrition should be a right and not a privilege for those fortunate enough to be able to afford it, or the children lucky enough to be born into those families. But as it currently stands, in one of the wealthiest democracies in the world, if you are a child who happens to have the misfortune to be born poor, 
you are likely to suffer nutritional deficiencies that undermine brain development and predispose you to greater mental health risk. On top of that, if you suffer the added deprivation of hunger, you are then more likely to be excluded from school with the often negative consequences associated with that. If, as a society, we know this and continue to do nothing, that's not an oversight, it's negligence. If we know that an intervention as cheap, low risk and accessible as a nutritional supplement could help a child's brain development, reading acquisition, academic achievement and behavioural difficulties, perhaps even reduce the likelihood of them ending up in prison, then to know this and yet do nothing is to say simply that we don't care. Moreover, it says that we are a nation that is satisfied to allow one group, children from poor families, to fail to reach their potential and to eke out a precarious existence on the fringes of our society because we can't be bothered to feed them properly. Thank you for listening. This podcast includes content funded by the British Podcast Awards Fund and the Wellcome Trust. It was written, hosted and produced by me, Kimberly Wilson, with music composed by Juan Iglesias. You can find full details of all episodes and contributors at kimberlywilson.co forward slash crime and nourishment. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.